invite you to open your Bible today and join me and follow as I read a very short Scripture passage, not in Matthew. We'll come back to Matthew the last Sunday of this month, but obviously in this season we'll be considering some other things. The book is 1 Timothy chapter 3. Our associate pastors have preached on this book. In fact, Pastor York is going to finish that series, I trust, tonight as he looks at the last text in chapter 6 that has not been covered. So I'm actually on some territory that they have talked about, but I'm going to, to bear in on it. They talked about it in a broader perspective. Verses 14 to 16 of First Timothy chapter 3. The first part of the chapter, if you glance at it, is the famous instructions that the apostle gave about leadership for the church. It might seem like he's writing a personal letter and just kind of rambling around about different subjects, but when you look closer, you see the unity. He's been talking about who should lead in the eldership and the diaconate. And then in verse 14, he begins to talk about the church in a bit broader way. Listen as I read these last three verses of First Timothy 3. Paul writing, although I hope to come to you soon, I am writing you these instructions so that if I am delayed, you will know how people ought to conduct themselves in God's household, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and foundation of the truth. Beyond all question, the mystery of godliness is great. He appeared in a body, was vindicated by the Spirit, was seen by angels, was preached among the nations, was believed on in the world, and was taken up into glory. This is the Word of God. In the past year, my wife and I have enjoyed reading together several novels by the same author, the British author, some of you may know, P.D. James. This is a woman writer. P.D. James is more or less the queen of the intelligent crime story. We have never really been mystery readers, but we thought we'd depart into something a little different and found this woman to be a highly intelligent and very literate writer who puts together skillful books Many of you may have seen some of her books filmed with the, she has, uh, you know how a mystery writer develops one detective who's the, the famous detector. Adam Dalgleish is her detective who works for Scotland Yard and solves the crimes. There are films on public television written by P.D. James. Well, these books, as they got me for maybe almost the first time into reading murder mysteries very consistently, reminded me that a murder mystery is really a formula story. There really isn't a lot of doubt about the basic pattern that the book is going to follow, no matter how good the author is. Usually, in the first couple of chapters, or I would say by the third chapter at the latest, sometimes even on the opening page, somebody gets killed. There's a murder. And then the rest of the book is the unraveling of that as the detective and his assistants or come in and you know examine the evidence and interview people and try to determine the motive and who the suspects could be that committed 
this murder. So really, there's no doubt about the pattern the book is going to follow, and no doubt that by about the last chapter, you will find out. If you're like my mother-in-law, you read the last chapter first. I could never understand that. I would not want to do that. But she likes to know who did it. Well, most of the time, what you find in these books that's interesting to me is that there are a couple people who look very suspicious right from the start. You say, oh, I, it, if I had to go on what I've learned so far by the fifth or the eighth chapter, you'd have two or three people. You say, boy, they had the motive, they had the opportunity, I think they did it. Well, the chances are that they didn't do it. Because early in a murder mystery, the most suspicious people usually end up getting cleared. And the person who did it is somebody inconspicuous. You've met them. They're introduced in the very early part of the book, but they don't look suspicious. And then later on, the author will skillfully show how somehow this person actually was the culprit, and you'll find that out in the end. Well, that reminded me, in a a way, in a manner of speaking at least, that that kind of a pattern is not unlike the plot that God followed as Jesus appeared in history. Not, of course, that Jesus is a crime suspect or a murderer, but in the way in which he was so ordinary looking as he was first apparent in history that people just didn't suspect that he could be the one. They, were, they had imagined that the person who would be the fulfillment of all the hopes of the Bible for a great Messiah and Lord and King and Savior would look absolutely different. So they looked right past him. And they didn't think he was the culprit, if you want to call him that. And it was only much later on, as of course the apostles had witnessed the cross and then the greatness of the resurrection and his ascension, that they were convinced and And they were so convinced that when they wrote later, as Paul is doing here in 1 Timothy 3, they were still, years afterward, rather overcome with amazement at how great it was that God did it the way he did it. Here is Paul writing in this letter rather calmly to Timothy, giving him sort of mundane instructions on how to lead the church and choose qualified leaders and what they should look like. And then I feel, as I read this whole chapter, Paul sort of rises up on tiptoe by the end of the chapter and just bursts out in a a, a sudden utterance of praise and adoration for the great thing that he saw God do. And so 1 Timothy 3, 14 to 16, I think, is a key text for this season of the year as Paul is excited about the great mystery of God becoming flesh in the person of Jesus. And I'd like to examine this in two main points this morning. The first of the two is this. I would say that the believing church is the guardian of a great mystery. Now, as I've mentioned, 1 Timothy 3 begins with what some people might call housekeeping matters. Housekeeping matters governing the church of Jesus Christ. Timothy's a leader. He is dealing with several different churches, and Paul wants him to know. He wants to pass on how the church should be governed and how it should be conducted. And then it's, it's as if his thinking turns in the midst of verse 15 because he's been talking about conduct in the household of God. And so he says here, he begins to expand the thought how people ought to conduct themselves in God's household 
which is the church of the living God, the pillar and foundation of truth. He's given us an expanded definition of what the church is there in verse 15. I believe the Lord is reminding us through Paul to think of ourselves as the living residents of the living God. Now, sometimes children ask their teachers or their parents, they're learning little lessons about God, and they say, well, where does God live? And one of the strangest questions, I've actually heard it not too long ago from somebody in this church. I walked by, and a little child, I was told this after the fact, that the little child turned to mommy and said, mommy, is that God? Yikes. I hope that got a real denunciation. But children could say, where does God live? Well, the answer that we would give them is not, you know, some, uh, that he lives in some constellation of outer space somewhere, but the Scripture says, and it claims here, that he lives in his church. The church is his household, his home, not the building, the people of God. He lives in the midst of the people of God. We are his residents, we who in faith And in repentance of sin, acknowledge the lordship of Jesus Christ. We are the dwelling of God. Now, maybe we should stop over that for a minute to just consider it. And consider it not just once in a while, but really every week, every time we come together as a corporate body of believers to do this thing we call worship and adoration of God. We are not simply a collection of people as if, you know, I've Two different places I've been in the last couple of days. There have been Santa Clauses uh, standing, wait, trying to wave people over to the side of the road, I guess, to give a, a gift for a collection bucket for some charity. Well, well, we're not just people who, you know, somebody was out here at the driveway waving them in, and, and a random collection of the citizens of Lancaster came in, and, well, here you are, a random group. You're not just a random group. You are, most of you, people who have acknowledged the reality of the living God in the person of Jesus Christ. And the Scripture says this people who believe in Christ as Lord are a sacred assembly. We are called the saints, the set-apart ones, because God dwells individually with those who believe in His Son as Savior, and He dwells corporately with us in a very special and unique way that's not so easy to define, but it's very real. In 1 Corinthians 14.25, Paul was talking again there about that kind of worship going on as the corporate body where God dwells would be raising up his praises. And Paul said that if a stranger would enter such an assembly, they would sense something, not just an emotion, but they would sense something powerful and real. And in awe, they would say, surely God is in this place. He's here in the midst of his people. Well, then it goes on after calling us the household of God here and says that the gathered church is also the pillar and foundation of the truth. Not only does the living God dwell among us, but he has made out of us a a strong place, a strong building made out of human stones to become a repository, a a bank vault, if you want to think of it that way, of the divine truth in the Scriptures of the Old and New Testament. 
I grew up watching lots of cowboy movies. If you were alive in the 50s and 60s, or at least to the early 60s when police movies came on, uh, cowboy movies were the mainstay of TV. And you remember the, the, the inevitable uh, stagecoach robbery. You know, the stage would be jouncing along, and, and out of some dusty canyon would come riding men with handkerchiefs over their faces to hold up the stage. And what they were always interested in getting was the strong box. Because up on top of the stage was a box. It might be the size of this top of the pulpit or a little bigger. Usually a wooden box with heavy steel bands around it and a great big padlock. I never could figure out that one bullet always broke the padlock, but I think they'd make better padlocks. But you know what I'm talking about. They wanted to get that strong box, it was called, because... Of course, in those days, money wasn't moved across the country or from city to city for a payroll or or a bank deposit by a big company with a wire electronic transfer like we send it today. The computers deal with all that. Well, then you had to physically move the money. And the cash and the silver and the gold would be in this big box, locked up, not an easy box to get into casually, and some guy with a rifle was standing guard over it. Well, if that's a right image, I think God is saying here, I have made my church into a strong, well-founded structure in order that it might be the container of revealed truth and the guardian of truth about who I am. You know, we think of how even this building or any great cathedral of the world is, is built. There are a couple of necessities. If you Remember this building going up just in the last couple years. They had to come in, first of all, dig a big hole, and and at the bottom of that hole get very secure concrete foundations. You couldn't just take a steel beam and stick it in the ground and hope it would hold up the building because the beam would just sink in the mud. You had to get something solid there, a base. And then pillars and, and beams rose to support the upper structure of the building so that it would stand tall and secure. Well, I think God is saying in a sense here that the human church is like that. It has a foundation. Elsewhere, that's called the foundation of the prophets and apostles built on Jesus Christ. And from that, a structure arises, a strong, sturdy, dependable structure. God gives to his church this container, if you want to think of it that way, not a physical building, but the people of God acting strongly, understanding the Word, interpreting the Word correctly, and therefore holding forth His truth, which He's given us in this wonderful book in the Old and New Testaments, a revelation, actually, of who and what He is. (coughs) Well, today people will tell you the truth is not quite as true as it used to be. That's what we're hearing on many sides A very fine book by David Wells is called No Place for Truth. In that book, he's talking about the fact that not just in the society, not just the secular world, but even in what was once called the evangelical church, there's no place for truth anymore, this truth of God, of which we are supposed to be the custodians because we've begun to listen more and more to the the values and the principles and the fads of a modern culture. We've begun to ask the society, well, what do you think is true? What do 65% of you think? Well, that must be true if 65% of you think that. 
How could that many people be wrong? And what has begun to happen is that the repository of truth in the Word of God has become a very plastic, movable thing, even in the hands of the church. And it can be reinterpreted or ignored or, or excised as someone decides. It just doesn't suit the convenience of the way society thinks anymore. God has created His church, here this verse 15 says of 1 Timothy 3, to be, first of all, a place in which He dwells, the living God dwells, and secondly, a strong place in which His truth should find protection and a secure home, the great mystery of His truth contained in the written Word. Well, secondly, then, there's a bit of an abrupt turn, and uh, this maybe is what mainly drew me to this text today. Paul announces in verse 16 what this truth results in or, or how it culminates, let's say. 1 Timothy 3.16 is a great verse. You could put it beside John 3.16. You may know there are quite a few 3.16s that are significant verses in the New Testament. But the second point I have here today concerns verse 16 and how the apostle sees Jesus Christ now. Not just the church and the scriptures, but Jesus Christ as the crown jewel of all revealed truth. And he claims here that the truth about God is a mystery fully revealed in the incarnation, the coming to flesh of Jesus Christ. This gospel, we call it, this good news that tells of Jesus becoming God in flesh, born of a virgin woman, dying on the cross as an offering to placate the wrath of God for those who claim him as their lamb, their sacrifice, and then rising bodily. Here is an ancient mystery about who God is that is no longer mysterious. Now, because of Christ, we know what was hidden for so many centuries. And our questions are answered, as if, again, reading that mystery novel, you know, all the way through, you've got a question. Who is it? How's this going to be solved? Well, that's, that's the way history proceeded all through the Old Testament. Who is it? Who will the Messiah be? And now it's revealed. The mystery is answered in the person of Jesus Christ himself. You know, at the time of Jesus, and actually for a few centuries before him, there were so-called mystery religions. One was called Zoroastrianism. There are some who think that the Magi who came from the East may have had some knowledge or even participation in the religion of Zoroastrianism. That's not known for sure. But these were sort of like cults which had one thing in common. They, provide, they prided themselves on the fact that they were the ones who bore and had secret knowledge about God. And if you would join their group, they would instruct you in the secrets of God. That, and they, you know, the big thing was, we've got it. Nobody else has it. Well, Christianity is not a mystery religion in that sense. We do have the knowledge of who God is. But we're not guarding it as a secret for only the initiated to find it out. It's a secret that is now solved, and we are most eager to tell the world what the resolution of it is. That's the difference between Christianity and a mystery religion. We don't have a a little cult of 
temple priests, and we say, well, only these people really know God. Not at all. God has made himself known to everyone who will come to him, broken for their sins and looking to the one who is the real resolution of the mystery. 2 Corinthians 4, 6 says, the light of the knowledge of the glory of God became visible in the face of Jesus Christ. Now, there are a number of parallel passages, and we could develop this idea more fully, but I don't have a lot of time this morning. But let me just give you, you might want to jot down the verses, uh, uh, four or five different parallels in Paul that speak this same idea of a mystery being revealed in Christ. It's a common theme in Paul's writing. In Romans 16.25, the great benediction to the book of Romans, the wrapping up of that book, Paul there writes about the proclamation of Jesus Christ according to the revelation of the mystery hidden for long ages past but now revealed through the prophetic writings. He meant the gospel. Ephesians 1.9 announces that God made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure which he purposed in Christ. In other words, if you go as far back as you can go into the mind of God, who decided to be a creator, who decided that anyone would ever be saved, his purpose that he was working out, that he was planning, comes forward and resolves in Christ, Ephesians 1.9 says. Colossians 1.27 is another wonderful statement. Paul writes, God has chosen to make known among the Gentiles the glorious riches of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. You see, the mystery becomes clear when Christ comes into you and becomes a living presence in your life and giving you hope. Colossians 2.2 is the only other one I'll give you here, but it's a follow-up reiterating again the purpose of Paul's ministry. When he says, here's my purpose, that you might have complete understanding and that you might know the mystery of God, namely Christ in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. You see how consistent that theme is in the apostle? He says there was a mystery for centuries. Nobody knew. Everybody was in suspense. But now the mystery's been disclosed. And so I feel that Paul's mood or attitude as he comes to the very last part of chapter 3 here, the end of verse 16 is a, a mood of rejoicing and excitement and praise, almost like he wants to stand up on his tiptoes, more excited than any Presbyterian ever is allowed to get in a worship service, you know. And he says, this is a great thing. Beyond all question, this is a great thing. I'm excited. I've been converted to faith in him for a long time, Paul might have said, years already here, but I'm deeply excited about what I'm about to tell you. Now, in our service this morning, we sang as opening hymn of the Father's love begotten. I always love it when folks, uh, you know, gently chide me for the hymns that have been selected. They say, Pastor, why don't you sometimes sing the old hymns? They usually mean early 20th century hymns when they're saying that. I know what they mean. You sang this morning as our first hymn. If you want to check it, go ahead and look at the bottom of the page of that first hymn. The words come from about 400 A.D. That's an old hymn, folks. We do sing the old hymns. That's just about the oldest one in the book. 
words that go back within a few centuries of the life of Jesus. And here Paul does something very unique. If you look at your Bible, it probably has the last part of verse 16, you know, set off or indented, which it does when something's being quoted. We think actually this may be a stanza of an ancient hymn. If it isn't, it's either a hymn or some would say it could be an ancient creed, something that was repeated that people were familiar with in the service, much like we would do the Apostles' Creed. But what we have here are three stanzas or couplets that probably come from something that was sung that tell about the great mystery of God revealed in Christ. Very quickly, I'm just going to go over this. There are three sub-points you could say here. The first is about the revelation of Christ. He appeared in a body and was vindicated by the Spirit. The word body emphasizes the true humanity of Jesus. He was actually conceived in the womb of a young woman. He was no phantom. He had a real humanity. He was nine months developing as a child develops in the normal way today. His beginning, his conception was not normal, but his development was normal. His birth was normal in the groaning pains of a young mother giving birth for the first time and the wail of a little baby heard in a a cow stall in a stable that was no antiseptic place to give birth there in Bethlehem. The weak flesh in which he was born in a real body, you see, is contrasted with the great strength that came to him by the Holy Spirit of God. You remember the event of his baptism? The Holy Spirit came upon him and was poured out in fullness, the equipping and empowering of God for his life of miracle working and healing. Even God's amazing son as a real man had the equipping of the Spirit for supernatural ministry. So he was weak flesh, uniquely empowered by the Spirit of God. He was God and man in one person. And the second phrase there, that he was seen by angels and preached among the nations. You might call that witness about Christ, coming from two sources. First of all, angels. Heavenly messengers. The word angelos means messenger. And where are the angels most seen in the Scripture, at least of the New Testament? Two main concentrations, many isolated places, but but two clusters of places, you might say, where angels are seen and are very active. And you know what they are. The night of Jesus' birth and the events of his resurrection. Witnesses from God came to say, in effect, this is God's approved one. We testify to him. And then Paul notes besides the or as he quotes this at least, he may not have been the author of these words. I suspect he was not. But he was seen by angels and preached among the nation. There were human witnesses as well who spoke of him and went nation to nation saying, the secret is revealed. The great one has come. And then the third couplet of this little hymn stanza, if that's what it is here, and we think it is, speaks of a reception by which Christ was received by many. On the first hand, received by human beings and their belief, their faith. It says, believed on in the world, human beings received him. But he had another reception too. He was taken up into glory. 
just as he came into this world, he left this world and was received into the unimaginable realm of the glory of God where he dwells and lives today. A man by the name of Walter Locke has taken this one part of a verse here, 1 Timothy 3.16, and he rewrote it. In other words, imagining that it was a hymn, he, he said, well, could I do it in rhyming poetry? So, so maybe it would be poetic, and, and if somebody would oblige by setting it to music, which as far as I know they haven't done, it could be a hymn that would sound poetic to us. Here's what Walter Locke wrote. He said, In flesh unveiled to mortal's sight, kept righteous by the Spirit's might, while angels watched him from the sky, his heralds sped from shore to shore. And men believed the whole world o'er when he in glory passed on high. Maybe some of our musicians can come up with some music for that. But we believe this was a song that the church sang. To say, here's the mystery, all resolved for us. Sublime, unimaginable wonders have shown us what God is like. And it all comes about in the mystery of Christ, born among us, living among us, dying for us, rising victoriously, and him alive today and prepared to return in glory. I join Paul in assuring you that Jesus Christ himself is the core of God's mystery. In him, Colossians 2.2, in him are hid all the treasures of the wisdom and the knowledge of God. The mystery is no longer mysterious. It is mighty It is made plain. It is worthy of adoration. And so inquiring minds should look to him and know that great is the miracle of the living God who became a living Savior for us. Our Father, this mystery thrills us. The very heart of the matter of who Jesus is. And as we come to this table, thinking not only of his coming from on high, but his going into the deepest depth to bear our sin. May we be amazed, and may our amazement issue in wonder and praise and a searching obedience in our lives for his honor. Amen.